If you would, uh, go ahead and take out your Bible with me and turn to the book of Mark, the gospel according to Mark chapter 2. We're going to be continuing our uh, Sunday night series through the book of Mark. It's been a while since uh, uh, the last time that we opened up this fabulous book, but I'm looking forward to our study tonight. Uh, Remember so far in our journey through this uh, magnificent gospel, uh, we've seen uh, Mark by the Holy Spirit present this man Jesus to us as somebody that is extraordinary, uh, somebody who's uh, somebody that, who is grand and great. By the end of the first chapter, Mark wants you to say to yourself, "Look at how great this man is." I mean, just look at the authority that he possesses from God. That's the perception that Mark wants you to have of this. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, as he's presented in the first chapter. Remember that the forerunner, John the Baptist, says that he himself, the one who makes uh, ready the world for the Messiah to come, he's not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. That's how great this man Jesus is. Remember that this man Jesus, he's anointed by the Holy Spirit of God, and that's God giving his divine stamp of approval on this Jesus. God here at Jesus's or at Jesus's baptism, God publicly announced uh, that this man is like he's like a bridge. He's like a bridge between heaven and earth. He is the one that's anointed with the very Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, uh, who will bring God down uh, to the midst of the people and who will bring the people up into the presence of God so that both may experience reconciliation and relationship together. Remember that he, this Jesus, he resists the schemes of Satan repeatedly like no human being has done before. There, there, so far in the biblical story, there have been many, many mighty figures uh, presented to us. Abra- Adam, Abraham, uh, Mo- Moses, uh, David, um, all of these mighty men of old, but, uh, but, but no one like this man repeatedly resists the schemes of Satan like Jesus Christ. Remember that this man, Jesus, he calls his own disciples to himself, unlike other Jewish rabbis, noting the, the level of authority that this man, Jesus, possesses. He even has power over the demonic, power over evil. He has the ability to cast out demons from the midst of the people. He possesses control over over disease and illnesses. When this man speaks, those who hear him, they're astonished. They're amazed at his wisdom, at his his authority. And, And even with his great might and power... He's moved with compassion when he sees the vulnerable, when he sees the helpless, when he sees the oppressed, the weak, and he works to heal them. That's chapter 1. That's chapter 1 of the mighty gospel of Mark. This Jesus is a man of power. He's a man of authority, and he's a man of compassion, unlike the world has ever seen before. However, 
When we get to chapter 2, chapter 2 marks a transition period within the story. The story takes a turn within chapter 2 in which Jesus begins to face opposition from his enemies. Uh, Beginning in chapter 2, the very first story there, uh, leading into the first part of chapter 3, chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 1 to chapter 3, ending in verse 6. Uh, that's where we're going to be tonight. We're, we're going to be in a, a larger block of text, and uh, my goal is to m- move as swiftly as we can uh, through those, uh, those stories. But in that block of text, beginning with chapter 2, verse 1, extending all the way to chapter 3, verse 6, we're presented with five separate incidents of conflict with Jesus' opponents, with the Jewish leaders, with the scribes, with the Pharisees. We're going to look at all those tonight, and all of those, are, are th- those, those incidents, they're very ironic, uh, be- because you would think, that someone as powerful and authoritative and compassionate as Jesus the Christ, as Jesus the Messiah, would, would be accepted. You would think that, that when he comes on the world scene, people would applaud him. People would, uh, people would praise his name, and there wouldn't be any opposition to him because of how great he is. Um, and that's how Mark presents him. But that's not what happens. That's not what we see at the beginning of chapter 2. His power is looked upon as something wicked. His authority is seen by his opponents as something that's corrupted, as something, as something that's twisted, as something that's distorted. And his compassion that he displays to the world is viewed as something immoral, vile, and even evil. And as you read these five stories, you, you can almost feel, uh, and I hope that you'll see this tonight, you can almost feel the tension that's gathering, that's building between Jesus and, and, and his opponents, between Jesus and the religious leaders. Uh, and, 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 at the la- and you can see this at the very last um, the last section, the last story in chapter 3, verse 6, says Jesus' opponents, they begin discussing how they can get rid of him, how they can kill him and end uh, this, this man's life. Now, what's going on here, uh, the backdrop and what Mark wants, un- wants us to understand, is that Jesus, when he faces this opposition, he's beginning to confront the evil human heart. A heart that the uh, prophet Jeremiah says is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. He's beginning, this Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, he's beginning to shine the light of God's truth on the blackness of the human condition and expose the sin of humanity. But still, even in, um, in, in that effort of exposing sin and preaching truth, his mission in coming to this world, it's not to condemn. His mission, rather, is to redeem. It's to redeem unworthy, hard-hearted sinners, even his enemies, even those of his opposition, so that they too can experience the joy of fellowship with God. So tonight, we're going to see, I hope, I hope we're going to see even more clearly how great this man is. 
We're going to see how Mark develops even more clearly his mission, uh, what his mission is, what it entails to save sinners. And we're going to see how his struggle with the human heart is beginning to grow and tension is beginning to gather. So let's look at that first story in Mark chapter 2, first of five. In Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1, as Chris read for us a moment ago. I want to read through verse 5 again. Verse, starting in verse 1, it says, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. So we see Jesus here. He's preaching the good news about the coming kingdom of God uh, when all of a sudden, He's interrupted. Something happens. He's preaching, and something occurs right in the middle of his sermon. Uh, have you ever seen a preacher uh, that has been interrupted before in the middle of a sermon? I remember when I was at uh, the Laverne Congregation uh, several years ago, uh, the preacher there, Josh Pappas, he, um, he asked this rhetorical question um, in, uh, in, in the sermon, and all of a sudden someone stood up in the audience and just <laughs> shouted out the answer uh, as loud as they possibly could. Uh, it was super awkward. <laughs> Uh, but something like that happens here uh, in, this, in this story as Jesus is interrupted in the middle of his sermon. Jesus is preaching. He's preaching the kingdom of God, about the kingdom of God. He's preaching in this house when all of a sudden the roof above, it starts to move. It starts, um, it, it starts to, to give way. And this paralytic is let down, tied on a cot, tied to ropes by four men, and is laid down at his feet. Is laid down at the feet of Jesus. And what's amazing here, as we see Jesus' attitude about this, this, this powerful man, this man that possesses such authority, this, this great man that's worthy of respect, he's not annoyed. <laughs> he's not annoyed at all uh, because, of this, uh, in, because of this interruption. He rather recognizes this action as a mighty act of faith. And it's because he sees, he has this spiritual vision. Jesus saw into their hearts and knew that these men believed that he was the only way, he was the only way that their friend could experience healing. And what Jesus says next, what he says next within the story after this, uh, after this, this event changes the entire direction of the story and helps us to see more clearly what Jesus has come to do. He says this, Son, your sins are forgiven. Mark here, he's developing in our minds what Jesus has come to earth to do. Jesus has the power to heal physical diseases. Yes, he has the power to cast out demons, but Humanity is in much greater need of a different kind of healing than the healing of the physical, the healing of a sin-sick heart. 
is man's greatest need. And, and this Jesus has the power, he claims to have the power to do even that, to bring about the healing, to bring about the restoration of the soul, reconciling man's relationship with God. Jesus claims to have the power to even forgive humanity's sin and put an end to humanity's greatest problem. That's an extraordinary claim. It's an extraordinary claim because forgiving sins is something that only God himself can do. Only God can forgive sins. And the religious leaders, they recognize this. They know this. And that's why they react in the way that they do. Look with me in the text in verse 6. Mark chapter 2, verse 6. Let's read verse 6 through the rest of this section. Verse 6 says, Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed. And they glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this, anything as great as this. The main emphasis here on on this story and what Mark is trying to get across to us is Jesus possessing the authority to forgive sins, which is met with very strong opposition uh, to the religious leaders. The, The scribes said, look, he's blaspheming. He's blaspheming the name of God. He's claiming to do something that only God can do. And of course, to back up that claim to have the authority to forgive sins, Jesus says to the paralytic, Jesus performs the miracle of physical healing, and he says, rise, pick up your bed, and and go home. And immediately, one of Mark's favorite words, immediately he rose up, he stood up, he picked up his bed, and he went, went out, proving, proving to everybody around that, yes, Jesus has awesome authority given to him by God. What Mark is doing here is that he's inviting you, he's inviting you, the 21st century reader, to look through this story, to look in your own life, to look internally and see your need of forgiveness as well, and point you to the only one that has authority from God himself to forgive those sins when you come to him, when you lay down at his feet like the paralytic man did in faithful obedience. And when you come to this Jesus with a true spirit of repentance and humility, he looks at you and he says the same thing that he says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. This man, Jesus, this great man who possesses power, authority, and compassion, he can do things that only God himself can do. Let's look at the next story very briefly, and that's the calling of uh, Levi, Matthew, the tax collector, uh, starting in uh, verse 13 there. Uh, the next incident here of, of opposition with Jesus and, and the religious leaders, it, it comes as he, his, as he calls and uh, an undesirable tax collector uh, to be his disciple. 
to be his follower. And he actually eats with other undesirable people uh, that reside there within the community. Notice with me, uh, let's start in verse 15, Mark chapter 2, verse 15, 15 through 17. Verse 15 says, And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, we've heard before, uh, I think, of the, the animosity that it, that's existed between uh, the Jews and the, the tax collectors. Remember that the tax collectors were traitors of their own people. They helped the Roman Empire. They helped the Roman government um, oppress the, the Jewish people and, and, and rule over them. And, and they, they um, gained financially from, uh, from their own people's loss. Um, they, uh, they, they benefited at their, at, at their own people's uh, d- demise. So, they, so in the eyes of everybody around, these tax collectors were horrible, despicable, undesirable people. And likewise, sinners uh, was another broad category of people that included uh, all the riffraff of society. Uh, those, the kind of people that, that reside within the world that, that make the world a less desirable place to live, uh, the sinners, the, the, the kind of people that if, if, they did, if they weren't there, then things would be a lot better, uh, those kind of people. Those, that, that's the category of people that Jesus is interacting with, that he's, that he's, that he's eating with, that he's fellowshipping with. Um, uh, but, but, but what is Jesus here? What is he caught doing? What is he caught doing in the, in, in the eyes of the scribes and Pharisees? He's, he's fellowshipping with them. He's eating with them, which was a sign in the mind of his opposition, in, in the mind of his opponents, that this man, he's accepting these vile, wicked sinners, in the minds of his opponents, in the minds of the religious leaders, what Jesus is doing by eating with tax collectors and sinners and even allowing one of them to become his own disciples, he's wallowing in the sinners and tax collectors' uncleanness and filth. And in the mind of his opponents, he's spitting in the face of their perception of God. And that's why he reacts so strongly. That's why they react when they say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? But this Jesus, this extraordinary person who possesses power and authority and compassion, uh, what, what he does in his next statement, it, he, he completely flips their perception of how God looks upon sinners upside down. He turns their worldview completely upside down when he says this, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, of course, we know uh, that Jesus is not condoning their sin, 
Jesus is not saying that their sin is okay and just accepting them for who they are kind of thing. He's not saying, he's not saying anything like that. He himself admits that these people are sick. They are, they are sick. They need a physician. They need a healer. And he says that the heart of God is one who seeks out those to heal and to forgive and to save. So what Mark is doing here, I believe, and what he wants us to see here is that this Jesus, he came. He came. He's seeking. He's seeking sinners. He came as a tender healer to heal the sins of humanity. He doesn't condone their sin. He doesn't condone sin and says that it's okay or make light of sin in any way. And in fact, uh, later on in the gospel, uh, according to Mark, Jesus is very hard on sin. But he is one who pricks the heart who pricks the heart with the light of his truth to bring about spiritual healing to those that submit to him. And he even seeks out, he seeks out sinners to save. He's come to this earth on essentially on a rescue mission uh, to seek and save that which was lost, to save the brokenhearted and the poor in spirit. And this man, uh, what, 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 we're, what the text is designed to allow us to see, what Mark is revealing to us is this man, this man, again, is so great. He is so compassionate. He's one who shows us. He, by his actions, by his words, by his authoritative words, he is showing us what God is really like. He's showing us the character of God that's unlike the perception of the Jewish religious leaders. But his enemies, instead of surrendering to his greatness, we know, uh, they start to store up even more contempt, even more bitterness, even more wrath in their hearts as, as he continued, continues to confront uh, their sinful condition. So the tension here, it's growing, it's growing, and it's growing. Let's look at the third incident, starting in verse 18 of, uh, of Mark chapter 2, starting in verse uh, eight, uh, 19. 19, I apologize, verse 19. Uh, so here, um, in the next incident of, of opposition with the, um, with the religious leaders, uh, starting, starting in verse 19 uh, there, uh, the, the text states that John's disciples uh, and the Pharisees were fasting. Uh, they had participa- participated in a Jewish fast. Now, now, fasting in this culture was, was a sign of religious piety. Uh, it was a more somber action that... Um, that showed one revered God, that showed one respected God um, above anything else. And the text here says uh, that, that there were those who came to Jesus and, and asked, why, why don't your disciples do the same thing? Why don't your disciples do the same thing that the disciples of John are doing and the Pharisees themselves 
are doing. And there's kind of a there's kind of an accusatory tone um, within uh, with that that that, um, that question carries. Um, uh, and, and, and the point of their question, the, the point of their question here was that, that Jesus' disciples uh, in their actions of not participating in a fast, like the pious disciples of John and like the pious Pharisees, it doesn't seem like Jesus' disciples are showing the same kind of somber religious reverence and respect to God like other pious people did. Why aren't your disciples, Jesus, doing the same thing that these great, pious, holy people are, are doing? That's, that's the nature of the question. And this is Jesus' response. Look with me in verse 19, Mark chapter 2. And Jesus said to them, Can a wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for if he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins." Uh, now, I w- I'm not going to get into all the details of the illustrations here because uh, I, I don't uh, want to take too much time there. But one, one, one of the main implications of Jesus' response here uh, was that he came to bring about something totally new. That's one of the implications of Jesus' response here. Something that the world was completely unaccustomed to, a salvation A salvation in God that's free, a salvation in God that's life-giving, a gift of grace that is unlike anything that has come from the heart of God, a new covenant relationship which which makes it possible for man to have access to God's throne of grace and find everything uh, that, that, that he needs. So Jesus' presence, one of the main points in Jesus' statement here, Jesus' presence uh, in, in, uh, in, in community with his disciples, it's a reason for celebration. It's a reason for joy. The, the appropriate response to his presence would be the way a bride glows with gladness on her wedding day, when, he come, when she comes out for all to see her. I, I don't think it would be very appropriate uh, for, uh, for a bride to fast on her wedding day. That would probably be a very boring wedding <laughs> if the wife fasted on her, her wedding day. In, in the same way, this man Jesus is a reason to live with joy in the present when you are in his presence. His salvation is one that frees the soul and gives rest to the weary. I think that's one of the main points within his response there. However, his presence, it doesn't have that effect on the religious leaders, on his enemies. They respond to him not with joy, not with celebration, not with gladness of heart, but they, res- they have the, the opposite response, uh, and that's a response of bitterness, because they see him as a threat. They see him as a threat to their power 
and authority. But that's one of the main things that Mark wants us to see here, I think, is that um, this, the, the presence of this Son of God, the presence of this, of this Christ, um, it's a reason to celebrate. It's a reason to rejoice. Um, now, I want to skip to the last one here, uh, just for time's sake. Uh, look with me in the last incident of, um, of opposition that's found in verse 1 of Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 1. This story here, it's the close of this uh, section, of this transition period within uh, the, the story. Uh, and then let's, let's read this text together. Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 1, and let's go all the way to verse 6. It says, Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? or to save life, or to kill. But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of your heart, at the hardness of their heart. Pay attention to that. And said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Now, as I said, I hope that uh, in, this, in looking at these incidents of opposition, I hope that you can see in this, in this text how, how his opponents, how Jesus' enemies, they go from casually observing Jesus in the first incident to then plotting how they might discredit him and make him look foolish in the eyes of everybody around him in the last. Um, things are starting to escalate Things, tension is elevating. Um, it's starting to grow. Uh, Jesus' enemies here, they're, they're becoming more bitter and more resentful toward him. Um, and, and they come up here with a plan to, to, to catch him violating the, the Sabbath law, which would have, um, <clears throat> which, which would have brought his, which, which would have brought his ministry to a halt. It would have brought his ministry to, 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 to a close if he was discredited in, in that way. But instead, and this is what Jesus does in other incidents uh, within the gospel accounts, uh, when they attempt to discredit him, he turns it around and discredits them and makes them look foolish. <laughs> uh, that's, that's one of the, um, that's one of the, the, the strategies of, of Jesus. And this enrages them. Uh, this makes them so angry, which brings them to begin plotting his demise, to begin plotting his death. And we see that in verse 6. But here, the point that I want to make through this uh, and, and, and what, 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 I want you, uh, what I want you to see, I want you to see here um, something that I think is very interesting. Uh, the text says in verse 5 that after Jesus healed the man with the withered hand, he, if you look in verse 5, you can see this, he was angered. That's his disposition. He was angered, grieved at their hardness of heart. If you see in the text here, this anger and this grief, uh, who's it, who is it aimed at? It's aimed at his opponents, this 
anger that's mingled with grief. It's angered at, at it's aimed at Jesus's opposition. Now, <clears throat> I want to suggest here, uh, as as we as we try to make sense of this, uh, and and we try to um, see what 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 the text is is telling us the the idea uh, here. Um, I want to suggest that you're only angrily grieved over something or someone that you deeply care about. You, you only have this kind of reaction, this kind of anger that's mingled with this kind of grief over something or someone that stirs your affections very deeply, someone that you, someone or something that you deeply care about. And, and I think that if you're, if you're a parent uh, here in the audience tonight, uh, then I'm sure that you can relate to this. Um, just think about when your child, when your children, when they fail you in, in, some, in some way, uh, and, and, and their failure, it brings you to the point of anger. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you've experienced that if you, if you are a parent. And then that anger, what's, what's the next step after the anger? That anger, after that anger, that anger it brings you to grief. Those emotions only come to the surface, that anger that's mingled with grief, because you deeply care because you deeply care about your children's well-being. You, you don't want them to, to, you don't want to see them to go down the wrong path. You want to see them make right choices and go down the right path and make good, wholesome decisions. But when they don't, what does it do? It breaks your heart. It breaks your heart in two, and it causes you to feel this kind of uh, mixed mixture of emotions that we see within the text, a mixture of both anger and grief. Now, the point here, what I'm pretty sure that Mark is trying to communicate here is that this unusual compassion that Jesus has for sinners, remember we've already seen that Jesus has this uh, this, this abnormal level of compassion for the undesirables, but that compassion isn't only just restricted to those cad- that 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 group of, of of people, he also possesses this abnormal compassion for those who hate him, and for those who eventually kill him and plot his death. That's extraordinary. That's absolutely extraordinary. That this man, Jesus, this man that possesses so much power, so much authority from God and compassion, he has these deep-seated, deep-rooted affections for even people that hate him, for even his enemies. He displays unusual compassion to his enemies. Mark wants us to see here that there's no one like this man, that there's no one like this man, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. There's, there's no one who can do the things that he can do. There's no one who can forgive sins like he can. There's no one who shows compassion to sinners 
like he does. There's no one whose presence brings about the kind of joy and elation and celebration that his does. There's no one who has the authority to determine how God's law should be used as he does. And no one, there's no one who shows the kind of unusual, abnormal compassion to even their enemies like he does. This is an extraordinary person, an extraordinary man. But he's more than just a man, and that's what Mark wants you to see as well. He's God. He's God in human flesh who keeps being rejected by the fallen human heart, who keeps being faced with opposition. But though he's rejected and he's even killed, he's going to bring about the greatest blessing the world has ever seen when he eventually goes to the cross of Calvary and rises again on the third day. We'll stop there and continue in our study next time. Uh, tonight, if uh, the invitation is, a, is extended to you, uh, I want to always offer the Lord's invitation and um, uh, say that if you, uh, if you are hurting or if there's something that is going on in, in your life that you need us to be aware of so we can lift your name up to God, to, it, this, this is an opportunity right now for uh, you to make that known, uh, for you to come forward and um, ask for prayers, ask for forgiveness, uh, or anything like that. It's an al- also an opportunity for you to embrace a, embrace a relationship with Jesus Christ. You can submit to the conditions of God's salvation right now by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and, uh, and repenting of your sins, making a decision to go the complete opposite direction. Uh, the, right now, uh, come forward and you can confess faith in Him and you can be immersed in the waters of baptism and, and know the joy uh, that the Lord brings. Uh, if there's anyone that has need tonight, why don't you come forward as we stand and as we sing?